Well, we want to welcome all of you to the Grace Church at Franklin worship services here this Sunday morning. We are glad to have all of you who are here. It's a little loud. It's feeding back, my friends. <laughs> can y'all hear that? I can. Well, all right. Hope that didn't blow your ears out. We're glad to have all of you who are here with us, and we want to especially extend an invitation to those of you who may be watching by the internet to come and worship with us here at Grace Church. We're located at 4052 Arno Road in Franklin, Tennessee, just a few minutes south of Nashville, Tennessee. We'd like to let you know that our services began at 1045. We do have classes at 10 if you're interested in coming to some classes. And uh, we also have a Bible study on Tuesday evenings at 6.45, that's Central Standard Time here. We can be viewed on YouTube, Ustream, and Sermon Audio Video. We're glad to have you, whether you're here live or whether you're watching by the Internet. We like to begin our services with the reading from God's Word and uh, petition to the Lord to bless us in our time together today to do that. Uh, Elder Joe Turner, Brother Turner has been with us for, I don't know, probably 40 years, a long time, probably close to 40 years anyway, <laughs> or more than 40, 45, maybe 45 years. We're glad to have him. He's going to come and read the scripture and uh, ask the Lord's blessings in a word of prayer. Brother Turner. Good morning, Grace Church. It's good to see you. I'd like to read a passage of scripture from the Psalms, Psalm 66. Here the psalmist says, Make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. Sing forth the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say unto God, how terrible, actually, how awesome art thou in thy works. Through the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. All the earth shall worship thee and shall sing unto thee. They shall sing to thy name, Selah. And then if we might skip down to verse 8. He says, O bless our God, ye people, and make the voice of his praise to be heard who holds our soul in life and suffers not our feet to be moved. For thou, O God, hast proved us, thou hast tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net, you have you laid affliction upon our loins. You have caused men to ride over our heads and we went through fire and through water, but you brought us out into a wealthy place. I will go into thy house with burnt offerings, I will pay thee my vows, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer unto thee burnt sacrifice of fasting or fatlings, with the incense of rams. I will offer bullocks with goats. Salah. In all of this, he is telling us that we should remember our God for the great things that He has done. 
not only for us, but for all of his people and for all of the nations. He is the one that has created them. He is the one that sustains them. And he does all these things by the word of his power. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we would approach unto thy throne of grace with praise and thanksgiving in our hearts. And truly we would sing thy praises sounding forth the truth that thou art our God, that you have done all things well. We thank you for giving us another opportunity to assemble together in this place. And as we yet have the freedoms to worship, we ask that we might be enabled of thy spirit to worship you this day. That you might anoint our brother as he comes to stand before us to declare unto us the word you've laid upon his heart. And for each one that you have drawn into this place, we ask that our ears would be unstopped, that our hearts should be opened, that we might hear and receive that word, and that your blessed spirit would take it and use it to conform us to thine image. We pray for those of our church family that are sick, asking again that you would be pleased to intercede on their behalf, to touch their infirmities, to strengthen and raise them up. And we'll thank you for these blessings as we ask them now in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. If you all would stand with me, we'll start with hymn number one this morning. Oh, worship the King. Oh, worship the King, all glorious above.
everybody. Why don't y'all sit down for a little bit, and we'll have some announcements, I believe, right? Okay. Well, good morning, and welcome to the services here at Grace Church. We have a number of folks that are joining us by internet, and we want to say a welcome to you as well by whatever means you may be watching or viewing the uh, services today. We pray that it will be a blessing to you. We have several prayer requests we'd like to mention to you. We want to continue to remember the Alexander family and the recent loss of Ricky's dad. And also want to uh, remember our brother Steve Griffin, who is ill, and for his wife Carmen, who is taking care of him. And also the reason I'm up here, Brother Todd usually makes the announcements, but he suffered a fall yesterday. He said there was no damage. I don't guess anything broken, but there's pain from a bruised back. So let's lift him up in prayer. And uh, continue to pray for our brother Adamowitz. We see he's here with us. Good to see you, brother. This, this tells us that you have completed your pre-operation chemotherapy. Is that correct? Yeah? All right. And tentatively scheduled for surgery on October the 2nd. So let's be in prayer for our brothers. He has this to go through. I want to remember our sister Shirley Murphy, who is not with us today. All right. So remember Shirley Murphy suffering with AFib. And uh, that's not a fun thing to have to deal with. But apparently they've got things back in normal if they send her home. So let's remember her. And also we want to remember our brother Lee Barton, who plans on having an epidural steroid injection uh, for leg neuropathy. So let's remember him before the Lord. And also his wife, Judy, as she ministers to him. Also uh, lift up Shannon Hazelwood's stepfather, Clyde Perrigan. Also want to remember our sister, Marie Dalton, who is here with us today. Good to see you with us today. Also, uh, David Simmons, who's been diagnosed with uh, kidney cancer. Want to continue to remember our sister, Sue Martin. Glad you're with us. And... Uh, also, by way of announcement, this is for ladies and gentlemen, but we'll do them one at a time. The Ladies Fellowship Luncheon will be September the 20th from 11 to 1.30. And uh, I'll let you look at the slip on the table because the kind of luncheon it is is hard for me to pronounce. <laughs> But I think the ladies have really enjoyed these things. It'll be at the Foster's home. Uh, Linda Foster is hosting this one. So uh, sign up on the table. Uh, there's a sheet there. If you'd like to help with providing food, then sign up. For the men, we'll have a fellowship on the same day. Uh, you don't have to be a husband of one of the wives that's attending the fellowship. Any of you men that would like to have fellowship, you can join with us. We have a good time. Uh, have some good discussions and good time of fellowship. So 
invite you to come. Mark your calendar, September the 20th, and it'll be the same time of day from 11 to 1.30. Uh, also, as pastors mentioned, I'd like to invite you to join uh, for the Tuesday evening uh, Bible study. It's at 6.45 to 7.30. Welcome to join for that. And if you would like to support the ministry here at Grace Church, then you may do so by putting your gifts, your offerings in the offering box out on the round table in the foyer. Okay. Upstairs, if y'all would switch it over to 10,000 Reasons, we're going to go ahead and skip tomorrow. Wait till the words are up on the board. And Brother Steve, are you better? Because we, we heard you were sick, but there you are. <laughs> Good to see y'all.
worship your holy name. I will worship your holy name. Amen. Amen. I was in a funeral service years ago. And uh, I did not officiate the service. I was just present. But Betty Hethcock was there, and your mother was with you. And uh, I was standing around outside to say something to the family. And Betty's mother came up to me and looked at me, and she said, Brother Sasser, you are getting old And I said, I've been old. I just quit using just for men on this beard. Well, as a brother here today, we're glad to have him. We're glad to have all of you here today. I'm especially encouraged, Ed, when I see you here. I'm especially encouraged when I see Tom here and others of you who have been ill and you don't let that stop you when you can. You come out and you worship the Lord. And that's where we should be. Well, this brother that's here with us today is from Canada. And he reminded me that he and his dad came to a Bible conference that I was involved in many years ago in Almont, Michigan. And I think, unless I heard you wrong, Jason, you said you was about 17 years old. And I think now he's at least 30. <laughs> He may be 40, 50 years old now. So we're thankful to the Lord for his, for his grace and mercy to us. And I often, I often think about what we would be without him. Without him, we would be lost. I didn't know whether to ask Lynn to come up because she doesn't know what key we're going to do this in and sing or not, but we'll do the best we can. And Sue is going to help us, and the, the rest of the without him, I would be nothing without him.
Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 44, and if you will stand together with me for the reading of God's Word. Genesis, chapter 44, and today, after taking a little detour last week, from the story of Joseph, I'm going to speak to you on the subject of the silver cup. The silver cup, Genesis 44, verse 1, he commanded, that is, Joseph commanded the steward of his house, his servant, fill the men's sacks with food. That's the sacks that belong to his brothers who have come to Egypt for the second time for food. Fill them with food as much as they can carry, and put every man's money in his sack, in the sack's mouth. They had brought money. In fact, they had doubled their money, because when they got home the first time, they found money in their sacks, and they were afraid they'd be accused of something. So he said, put every man's money back in his sack, verse 2, and put my cup the silver cup in the sack's mouth of the youngest and his coin money. And the steward did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys." May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word and let God's people say praise the Lord and you may be seated. Most all of the commentators agree that it is a shame that the scriptures before us are divided into chapters 44 and 45 because in reality they can't be divided Together they form one grand final act of the story begun in chapter 37 when Joseph was only 17 years old. In the divine and sovereign providence of God, Joseph, who had been sold as a slave by his brothers at the age of 17, has become the prime minister, the governor of Egypt. Thirteen years later, after he was betrayed by his brothers at the age of 30, he became the governor of all of Egypt. And here we learn our underlying lesson. I have two major lessons that I want to try to teach today, but here's the underlying message. 
It is both a wonderful and a dangerous thing to oppose, to plot against, to envy, to be jealous of one of God's children. But if this happens, two wonderful events always follow. These are the two major lessons for us today. Number one, the Lord always has a way to advance his child in spite of all opposition. And number two, those who caused the trouble always dearly pay for it. Now let's look at this first lesson. The Lord always has a way to advance his child in spite of all opposition. I will use, of course, the story of Joseph in this light. You plan to murder Joseph, which is what his brothers did. And the Lord will move somebody to suggest putting him in a pit. You put him in a pit, and the Lord will send some Ishmaelites along to buy him. Sell him to some Ishmaelites, and the Lord will move the Ishmaelites to sell him again at a slave auction. Moved to sell Joseph, the Ishmaelites put him up for sale at a certain place, on a certain day, at a certain time of the day. And the Lord had appointed a certain man named Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh and captain of the guard, to be among the buyers that day. And he was moved to bid for the young man named Joseph. And he bid for him, and he bought him, and he took him into his home to serve him. And in a short while, the Lord impressed Potiphar to make Joseph the head man over all of his estate. As it says in Genesis 39, And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand, and Joseph found grace in his sight, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand. And while Joseph was busy over all the house of Potiphar, Potiphar was busy serving the Pharaoh. Thus he was not home a lot. And in the process of time, it came to pass after these things that Joseph's master's wife, being an ungodly and unfaithful woman, pursued an intimate and immoral relationship with Joseph. But he, being a godly and faithful man, refused her advances. And because he was refused, he was humiliated, or she was humiliated, and she accused him of rape. And Potiphar, being a spineless man, and not willing to investigate the matter and discover the truth, put him in prison, where he was shut out from civilization 
and any possibility of proving his innocence. Ah, but the Lord of Joseph could not be shut out by prison walls. And so the Lord put two men in prison, not just in prison, but in prison with Joseph. And not just any two men, but two men who stood before the Pharaoh and personally served him. And having put the two men in prison, the Lord gave both men dreams regarding their individual futures. And he gave Joseph the interpretation of those dreams, and he caused those dreams to be fulfilled exactly as Joseph had interpreted them. And one of the men, a baker, was executed, and the other man, a cupbearer, was restored to his former position in Pharaoh's entourage. And the restored man promised Joseph that he would remember him to the Pharaoh, but he didn't. He forgot him, but the Lord of Joseph did not forget him. And so the Lord put the cupbearer in a position where it would be to his great advantage to remember Joseph. How did he do that? He gave two troubling dreams to the Pharaoh. And he caused the forgetful cupbearer to hear about Joseph's dream. And he gave him the good sense to help himself by mentioning Joseph to the Pharaoh. And this resulted in Joseph being released from prison and given a personal audience with the king of Egypt. And Joseph gave the Pharaoh, actually God gave to Joseph, the interpretation of the dreams of the Pharaoh a seven-year famine was coming, and God gave Joseph a plan of preparation for the entire nation of Egypt and his people. And the Pharaoh was so impressed with Joseph that he made him the governor of Egypt. Now think about that. You've heard this story many times over the last year, but in 13 years, the Lord promoted Joseph from the pit to Potiphar's place, to prison, to the palace of the king in 13 years. Dangerous thing to go against children of God. In 13 years, the Lord promoted him from shepherd boy to governor, while his brothers remained the poor shepherds who would have starved to death were it not for Joseph. So, Concerning the first part of this lesson, never oppose, never envy, or be jealous to a faithful child of God. We learn this lesson. The Lord will make a way out of no way for his children. And a man or a woman who opposes a child of God is a fool because the Lord always has a way to advance his child in spite of all opposition. So here's a revelation for you. Your name may not be Joseph, but if you are a child of God, 
and you will trust him in all things at all times. He will make a way out of no way for you. And I believe that this is an inexorable principle, a principle that knows no exceptions for time, place, people, or nations. Look at David. Who was he? He was a little shepherd boy on the backside of nowhere. And Saul was an unfaithful king. And God said to the prophet Samuel, I'm going to anoint a new king to take the place of Saul. Samuel said, if Saul finds out about this, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of him and you. Where do you want me to go, Lord? I want you to go out to a little old farm on the backside of nowhere, a guy out there named Jesse. Go out to Jesse's house. And he went out to Jesse's house and when Jesse heard that the prophet was coming, he got his family ready, he got his sons ready. And when Samuel told Jesse why he was there to anoint the next king of Israel, what does a daddy do? Well, a dad brings his biggest, strongest, what he considers to be most talented boy up in front of him. And Samuel looked at him and the Lord said, that's not him. And Samuel said, this is not the one. Do you have another son? Oh, yeah, he had plenty of sons. He brought the next one up, and the Lord said, neither is this the one I have chosen. He brought another one up, and finally, he brought all of his sons up. And Samuel said, I know this is where the Lord sent me. Is this all of your sons? Oh, no, I've got one more. He's the youngest, but he's just a shepherd taking care of the sheep out there. Well, Samuel said, we won't go till you bring him in. And he brought David in, and immediately the Spirit of God said, this is he, arise and anoint him. Who is he? He's nothing and nobody from nowhere. He's just a shepherd boy on the backside of nowhere, but he's got this thing going for him. You know what it is? He's a man after God's own heart. He loves the Lord. He loves the Lord's Word. He can't get enough of His Word. He's filled with His Word. And my friends, when you're filled with God's Word, you're filled with His Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, God will make a way out of no way. All of, of David's brothers were envious of him and jealous of him and tried to keep him down. And it has been suggested by some scholars that even his dad didn't care that much about it. But the Lord made arrangements for David to go up to where the Philistines and the children of Israel were at a standstill, and there was a great big giant that came out there every day. He was nine feet seven inches tall. He wouldn't have to do much to dunk a basketball, would he? Nine feet seven inches tall. And when David took some food, he said, his dad said, you take some food and go up there and Take some food to your brothers. They're up there fighting the Lord's battles. And David took some food up there and he heard the story about the giant. And every day the giant would come out and challenge them and say, I tell you what, you bring one man, I'll represent the Philistines. You bring one man, we'll fight. And if I win, 
we become your masters, and if you win, then you'll become our masters. And he was not only nine foot seven inches, he was covered everywhere with armor. His helmet came down here, and helmet here, he was just an open space right here. Well, you know the story. When he saw David, by the way, David wasn't 12 years old at this time. He's about 24 years old. He wasn't a boy. But he was a lad. He was young. He was just nobody from nowhere been taking care of sheep. But he loved the Lord. He trusted the Lord. He was full of the Lord's word, full of the Lord's spirit. And the Lord makes a way out of no way, no matter what kind of opposition. So it's maybe his father was against him. All of his brothers were against him. Now this giant, Goliath, is against him. And he said to David, what is this that is sending to me? A boy? Uh, he said, you come to me and I'll feed you today to the animals in this area. And David said, no, he said, you come to me. In the name of your gods, but I come to you in the name of the God of Israel. And when this battle is over, the world will know that there is a God in Israel. David, David had five little stones, and he, he threw that stone. He, he ran at the giant, it said. <laughs> this, this big old guy never had anybody run at him, believe me. Everybody ran from him when they saw him coming. And here was a young man running at him and throwing that sling. And he released that sling and one stone and hit him right here. He fell over on his face. He probably wasn't dead, but he was hurt bad. But David went up and took his sword out, the giant sword out. David had no sword. He just had a sling with stones. He took the giant sword out. He cut his head off. His head must have been that big. And did you know that David kept the giant's head in his tent for several days? And when he went before King Saul, he had the head of the giant. He made a way out of no way, and he made a way out of no way for Joseph, and he'll make a way out of no way for you. Your, man, your name may not be Joseph, but if you're a child of God and you're trusting him, he'll make a way out of no way for you. This is an inexorable principle. Now, here's the second lesson. Those who cause the trouble will always pay dearly for it. The Lord said through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32, to me belongs judgment and recompense. Recompense is payback. Their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. Their foot shall slide in due time. The Lord will remember what his enemies have done to his people. He will wait for the right time to punish them. The time will come when they will fall but he will rescue his people. He will have mercy on those who serve him. Now Joseph's deceitful and lying brothers, and I hope you have your Bibles open because we're going to cover these verses in just a minute. There are pew Bibles in front of you. If you didn't come with the Bible, you can get a pew Bible. 
and find Genesis chapter 44. Joseph's deceitful and lying brothers have forgotten all about what they had done to Joseph. By this time, about 20 years have passed. But the Lord didn't forget about it. And neither did Joseph. And so 20 years later now, they find themselves in an impossible situation, and it's about to get worse. First, they are facing eventual starvation. The famine that the Lord brought on that part of the world has forced them to go to Egypt for food, the very place they never wanted to go. And this is their second trip here in Genesis chapter 44. On their first trip, they met the governor, and it was not a very pleasant meeting. Number one, they were accused of being spies and threatened with imprisonment. Number two, their brother Simeon was taken from them as collateral and imprisoned. Number three, they were threatened with extreme punishment if they came back to Egypt without their youngest brother. Number four, they found their money in their sacks for which they knew they could be imprisoned or executed as thieves. Number five, they had to tell all this to their aged father. Number six, they had to return to Egypt a second time to get food, and this time they had to take Benjamin. And number seven, Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, had to pledge his life and the life of his sons to get their father to agree to send Benjamin with them. So now as the chapter opens here in chapter 44, we see in the first three verses that Joseph has commanded the steward of his house to fill their sacks with food, put every man's money back in the food, and he says in verse 2, put my silver cup in the sack's mouth of the youngest boy. Who would that be? That would be Benjamin. That's the one they had to bring back to Egypt in order to have an audience with Joseph in order to get food. Why did Joseph have the cup put into Benjamin's sack? He did that to put Benjamin into, an, into a difficult and dangerous situation, I believe. Well, why? Well, remember, these liars, these brothers of Joseph who are liars, do not know that the governor is their brother. So why did he put the sack, the silver cup in Benjamin's sack? He wants to discover if his brothers are still the same callous liars that they were when they sold him. He wants to see if they still feel the same way toward Benjamin as they felt toward him. They abandoned Joseph. Will they abandon Benjamin? You have to remember now that Joseph and Benjamin are full-blood brothers, and they were the only children of Rachel, the other boys were the children of Leah and their two handmaidens, Billah and Zilpah. 
Well, why did Joseph restore the money to every man's sack? He didn't do it for their sake. He did it for his father's sake. That was the money of his father. His father sent that money in there. His father, who had sacrificed so much and thought that he, Joseph, was dead. He had sent double money. He put the money in there for his father's sake. And he, spent the, he put the money in every man's sack to spare Benjamin. Since money was in every sack, Benjamin appeared no more guilty than the rest of it. So you notice in verse 2 that the cup was put in Benjamin's sack, and it was a large goblet. It was an expensive item. Probably the same cup Joseph drank from the day before when, as we saw in the last chapter, he had them into his home for a feast. And so the next morning, according to verse 3, in high spirits they departed Egypt for home. Now Joseph has a threefold plot here in verses 4, 5, and 6. His threefold plot is follow, catch, and accuse. It's what he says in verse 4. When they were going out of the city, were not yet very far off, they're headed back home to Canaan. Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. Follow after them. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you rewarded evil for good? Is not this it, speaking of the cup, in which my Lord drinketh, and whereby indeed he divineth, he's able to foretell the future with it. You've done evil in so doing. <laughs> Probably the steward does not know exactly everything that's going on. So Joseph said, follow him. Then he said, catch up with him. You know, you can never outrun the providence of God. He said, Catch up with them. Remember, they've totally discounted what they did 20 years earlier when they sold their brothers. And then he says in verse 4, accuse them. Why have you rewarded evil for good? And my friends, it's important for us to understand here that at this point, these brothers see themselves as good and righteous men just like all human beings do. All human beings say, I'm not a bad guy. I'm not a bad woman. I'm not any worse than anybody else. In fact, I haven't done a lot of things that other people have done. And so they see themselves as good and righteous men. And of course, this is why God sent his son, because we're not good and righteous men and women. We are sinners who must be saved by the grace of God or we cannot be saved. And I want you to know something. What Joseph does here in following after his brothers, in catching his brothers, and then accusing his brothers is the exact order of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in dealing with souls unto salvation. He follows after them, he catches them, and then he brings them under Holy Spirit conviction. And he shows them that they are sinners, and he shows them that they have no righteousness, and he shows them that they need a sin bearer, and he shows them that they need someone or something who can provide a righteousness for them. He shows them that they are under judgment, but there's someone who has borne their judgment. 
Can you imagine, if you put yourself in the place of Joseph's brothers, can you imagine being halted by the governor's special agent who says a very special cup is missing, so special that he sent a special agent to recover it? They were in confusion, and they were thrown into horror. They were beside themselves. Tom, we talk about our blood pressure going up. Their blood pressure was up. Now, verses 7 through 9, here's the response of Joseph's brothers to Joseph's servant. First, they don't understand the accusation. Verse 7, they said to him, Why do you say these words to us? God forbid that your servants should do according to this thing. Now, I want you to notice something there. These lying rascals that sold their brother, first of all, they always justify themselves. That's what we do. We always justify ourselves because we're full of self-righteousness. And notice how religious they are now. Now they're saying, God forbid. They're religious people. God forbid. Oh, no, Mr. Stewart. No, no, no. You're looking at good, honest, and righteous men. We would never do what you're accusing us of. No, you wouldn't do that. You'd do worse than that. You'd sell your brother to some Ishmaelites, and you'd forget him and pass him off as dead and go home and lie to your father and tell him that a beast is eating him up. That's what you would do. But they've forgotten all about that. God forbid. Then in verse 8, they try to show why it's unreasonable to accuse them. Let's look at this. Behold, the money which we found in our sacks' mouths, we brought that again. Why would we have brought the money back if we were thieves? How then should we steal out of our Lord's house silver or gold? Now, what's wrong with their statement? They're trying to show this steward why it's unreasonable to accuse them of stealing the cup. We brought the money back. In fact, we brought double money back. Now, now listen to me. It was their father who suggested taking their money back, and it was their father who suggested doubling the money. And they said, we've come all the way back to Canaan. Why would we do that? Well, they came back to Canaan because they were going to starve to death. They didn't come back to Canaan. That's why they came back to Canaan. They didn't come back to bring the money back. They came back because, number one, they had to obtain food. They came back, number two, because Joseph was holding their brother Simeon in prison as collateral, and their father wants him home. And they came back, number three, because they knew they would risk arrest and imprisonment if they didn't bring Benjamin and try to get food without Benjamin. My friends, here's a revelation for us. Unsaved people do not understand the severity of the Lord's accusations against them. Just like Joseph's brothers, they think themselves as righteous men. They say, what's the big deal? Okay, so I told a lie one time or another. Okay, so I did this. What's the big deal? You mean God's going to put men in hell because of that? 
You mean God's going to kick Adam and Eve out of the garden because they took fruit off of a tree? You don't understand. It's not what you do. It's who you're doing it against. It's who you're doing it against. That's what makes sin so horrible. You're doing it against a good and gracious God, against a God who's merciful, against a God who gives you your very next breath. Years ago, Ralph Barnard said, the time is going to come when men would begin to deny the Scriptures. And he said the first doctrine to go will be the doctrine of divine eternal punishment. And he proved himself to be a prophet. Now God wouldn't punish anybody. Look at their thoughtless and careless proposal. Look at this. Verse 9. With whomsoever of thy servants that that cup be found, let him die. And we'll be our Lord's bondsmen. Our Lord's slave. We'll be Joseph's slaves. You let the man took that cup die. <laughs> My goodness, one would think that having had one visit with Joseph, having had the governor deal with them on that first trip, discovering how shrewd and how severe he was that he took their own brother and put him in prison to guarantee that they would come back, you would think that they'd never make such a presumptive statement as that. And again, just like men who are guilty before God, they think themselves honest and righteous men. And when men stand before God in the great day of judgment, and I'm going to say more about this in just a moment, they're going to say, oh yeah, we said this, but we didn't mean it. We didn't really mean it. Look at verses 10 through 12. Now, a thorough search is made. Let it be according to your words with whom it is found. It shall be my servant. The servant replied back to him, said, Okay, I'll, I'll let you draw up your own contract. The servant said to them, this is verse 10, Let it be according to your words. Whoever I found the cup with, he's going to be my servant and you will be blameless. Verse 10. Joseph's servant agrees to deal with them on their terms. I hear all the time, and I've been hearing for all my life, even before I was converted. <laughs> I've been hearing people saying about God, that's not fair. Well, fair is an old southern word for justice. If you want God to be fair with you, you're asking for justice. If you want God to deal with you on the basis of who you are, what you've done, what you have done, and what you have said, that's justice. And this servant said, okay, I'm going to deal with you on the basis of what you just said. Let it be according to your words. My friends, the Lord of heaven does not need some special counsel to deal with men. All he needs, if he's going to judge us, is to call up our words, whether spoken or only thought. 
You don't have to say them. Jesus said in Matthew 12, a good man out of the treasure of the heart brings forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they will give account in the day of judgment. Matthew chapter 12. If I have to give an account for my words in the day of judgment, you're looking this morning at a condemned man. Because I've said things that I wish I'd never said. I've thought things that I wish I'd never thought. I've probably murdered a thousand people in my mind. I'm sure we don't have any such people here today in this group of nice, innocent folks. On the great day of judgment, when the words of men and women who died lost, who never called upon the Lord, who never believed in the Lord, when their idle words are recalled, they will pretend then that they never really meant what they said. But the Lord will say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Luke chapter 6, verse 45 would you like to turn to another passage of Scripture? See if you can find the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, it's not hard to find. If you can find Psalms, and Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. Right in the middle of your Bible is Psalm, followed by the book of Proverbs, and then we have the book of Ecclesiastes, written by Sol Solomon, who was the son of David. Find the Psalms right in the middle of your Bible, or you can look right in the beginning of your Bible at the table of contents and find the page number. Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Talking about idle words now. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. He says... In verse 1, keep your foot when you go to the house of God and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth. Do not let your heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and you are upon the earth. Let your words be few. He said, keep your foot. That is, don't be like a person who's running here and running there when you come into the house of God or when you go into the presence of God. Suppose you're in your own home, you're in your own closet, and you're going into the presence of God. He said, don't be like a person that's running here, running there. You got your mind going in 15 different directions. He says, be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. What's the sacrifice of fools? That's people running their mouth and saying things that they shouldn't be saying to God, making promises that they shouldn't be making. You're there to hear from God. When we come together like this today, we're here to hear, we're, we're congregated to hear from God, not to utter foolish talk to Him or to make rash and foolish promises. Now, I am not going to rebuke anybody personally today because I'm just as guilty as anybody else. Well, when this worship service is over, I don't want you to come up to me and say, who's playing this afternoon, the Chiefs and the Lions? 
I don't want to hear that. Don't talk to me about that. Because I am still thinking on what I have tried to deliver to you, the Word of God. I'm not interested in the football players, or the baseball players, or the hockey players, or the soccer or volleyball players. I'm interested in, has God spoken to us this morning? Then he says, be not rash with your mouth. Let not your heart be hasty to utter anything before God. That is, think and act carefully and with much reverence and much respect. Notice this. It says, be not rash with your mouth. Okay, that's speech. Don't let your heart be hasty. So he knows what's in our heart. For God is in heaven and you are upon the earth. Let your words be few. That is, remember who you are. Who am I? I am nothing and nobody from nowhere. And if I lost, God hadn't lost anything, but I've lost everything. Remember who God is. We've forgotten who God is today. God is just, uh, he's just like uh, uh, somebody, that he's, he's like Santa Claus. You just mention his name and talk to him and say, God, I'll do this if you'll do that. Well, he doesn't have to do anything. He is God, my friend. He doesn't owe us anything. We don't make deals with God. We don't make bargains with God. We'll see what we'll do in just a moment. He is the creator, he is the administrator, and he's the judge. Go back sometimes on your own and study these verses. Let's go back now to chapter 44. Let me see if I can finish. Chapter 44. So what happens? They make a thorough search. Verses 11 and 12. Genesis 44, verses 11 and 12. They speedily took down every man his sack to the ground. They opened every man his sack. And the steward, the servant of Joseph, searched, and he began at the oldest, and he left off at the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sight. By the way, the word searched is in the imperfect mood, and it means he kept on searching, because he knew the cup was there. <laughs> he knew it was there, so he just kept on searching. You know what? If the Lord dealt with me this morning on the basis of a search of my soul, a thorough search, what would he find? Would he find love for Christ? Would he find that I have trusted in Christ? That I am trusting in Christ? I want you to notice that he opened every man's sack. Every man's sack was searched. Not one was omitted from the oldest to the youngest. And nobody will be omitted when we stand before the Joseph of heaven, when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, every man. And they were confident. They were absolutely confident that nothing would be found. <laughs> Much like men who are ignorant of their own sins and God's righteousness. I hadn't done anything that God's going to punish me for. Well, I will give you a little hope this morning. You can tell me anything you've done. You can tell God anything you've done. And I will tell you that he is able by his grace through the blood of Christ to forgive you of everything you've done. But if you die without having his son, you'll never be forgiven for that. You'll never be forgiven for that.
I don't care what you've done, whether it's lying, stealing, cheating, fornication, adultery, whatever it is, you can be forgiven by the grace of God, the blood of Christ. God's Son cleanses us from all sin for those who trust in Him. But if you die without Christ, you'll never be forgiven for that. So here's the question. What can a sinner do? Well, look at verses 13 through 16. They tore their clothes, and they loaded everything back on their animals, and they returned to the city. And Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, for he was still home, and they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this you've done? Did you not know that such a man as I am can certainly divine? Judah said, What shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? Verse 16. Watch this now. God has found out the iniquity of thy servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and also he with whom the cup is found. What can a sinner do when he comes before the Lord who accuses him? He can do nothing but fall down on the ground and ask him for mercy. Just like these brothers did. They fell on the ground. Should not they have known that he would find them out? Don't you know? He's saying to them, don't you know that I would miss my silver cup? And you notice they have no words to justify themselves. You see, Joseph is dealing with them on the basis of the silver cup. But what the silver cup is doing is bringing back to their minds and hearts all they have done. They don't know that this Joseph, this governor, is their brother. So they're relating all of that to what they did to their brother 20 years ago. And he says here, Judah says, we have no words to justify ourselves. Listen to me. Never seek to justify yourself with God. Always take sides with him against yourself. Say to him, you're right. Whatever you accuse me of, Lord, you're right. I've been guilty of that and much more. Don't fuss and fight and argue with him. Don't tell him he's a liar. You never did any such thing. Don't do that. You try that in a courtroom. You see all these judges on TV that should never have been allowed. These, these uh, courtroom trials on TV where people fuss and fight and argue with the judge. That, that is not like it is, boys and girls, when you're in a real judgment hall. The judge doesn't. I've seen a judge put tape over a man's mouth, keep him shut up, put handcuffs on him. Said, you'll not be talking out in my courtroom. They have no words to justify themselves. They acknowledge the righteousness of God in verse 16. They said, God has found out the iniquity of thy servants. They surrender themselves to Joseph as his servant. Now, this is very, very important. I'm trying to finish here. Right here, 
when they came in, verse 14, and they fell down before him on the ground, coupled with, verse 16, we are my Lord's servants. Number one, this is where the dreams of Joseph are fulfilled exactly. It said that your sheaves are going to bow down to my sheaves. Back when he was 17 years old, that's number one. And number two, this is where we must come if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. When you bow to Christ, you're not just saying, thank you, Lord, for saving me from hell. You're saying, I am your servant. You're saved to serve the Lord. You're not saved so he can be used as a fire escape to get us out of hell and then we just live our lives like we want to. No. No, we are saved to serve him. My life is not my own. I'm bought with a price. So Joseph passes the sentence, verse 17. They said, we're your servants, not only us, verse 16, but we and also the one with whom the cup is found. Where was the cup found? Found in Benjamin's sack. Here's what Joseph said. Oh, no, he said, no, I, that's not what I'm going to do. The man in whose hand the cup is found, he'll be my servant, and the rest of you can go home in peace. What's he doing here? He's finding out if they care anything about Benjamin, just like they didn't care anything about him. He said, you can go home. You're free to go. I got the thief here. I got this guy, Benjamin. He's got the cup. You're free to go home. What are they going to do? They're going to leave Benjamin like they left Joseph? You see, he's testing them. He knows. He's testing them. Will they leave Benjamin as they left Joseph? If so, there has been no change in them, and they are just as cruel as they were before. But you know what? They've been changed. They refuse to leave. They refuse to leave. They've been changed. And so I'll leave you this morning asking you this question. Have we been changed? If there's been no change in us, we will die as we were born, lost. But if the Lord has changed us, if in fact he has dealt with our hearts, we cannot be as we have been. This is a picture of the power of grace toward the worst of rascals. And I say to you this morning, no man, no woman, no boy, no girl is beyond the power of God to save them and to change them. Come to Jesus and he will own you as his child. He will take you in. But he owes you nothing. For by grace are you saved through faith and that faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. The Lord's silver cup is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're guilty of the death of God's Son. You understand that? 
You see, God sent His Son into the world to die for us, but men put Him to death. We're guilty. When God gave Israel sacrifices, they had to go out and cut the throat of a lamb and catch his blood. They had to kill the lamb. And Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And we are guilty. You see, the worst murder ever committed in the history of the human race is the death of Jesus. And yet at the same time, it was a fulfillment of the purpose of God to provide a sacrifice for his people whom he has been pleased to save. I hope that you understand that and that you will come to the Lord Jesus Christ, believing on him and confessing him, bowing to him now and the rest of your days. May the Lord add his blessings on the teaching of his word.